if you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me again to the book of Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. Remember, if that's hard to find, go to Psalms, go back a few books, and you will get to Ezra. And welcome to the second week of our series. It's going to take us through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, a series that we are calling Renovation. And if you were here last week, remember that Ezra, even though he doesn't appear until chapter 7 of the book that bears his name, um, he is a Bible nerd who basically gets other people to take the Bible seriously. And then Nehemiah, who we'll meet in the book of Nehemiah, is essentially a project manager for the rebuilding of the ancient walls of Jerusalem. So the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is set against the backdrop of ruins. So everything is ruined all because of their relationship with God had been ruined through their own disobedience. So the history of Israel can be described really and simply and kind of sadly as a history of constantly forsaking their covenant relationship with the Lord. So event after event after event had led the people of God further and further away from their God. And Events in our lives, you know, choices that we make in our lives are also leading us somewhere. So every event, every choice is leading us somewhere. And the events of our lives are powerful, they're shaping, they're controlling. Events in our lives can be overwhelming, they can also be debilitating in so many different ways. But let me just say this this morning, I want you to hear this. Events of your life and my life are not sovereign over our lives. So the events are not sovereign over our lives. So the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, once at one time a single volume, are basically narratives that chronicle events that follow from an event that was so powerful that it marked Israel's identity forever. It's an event that the Bible calls the exile, and the Bible calls those who participated in it exiles. So it would forever mark them. And behind this determining event, was a good and gracious God of covenant. What we read in Ezra and Nehemiah are actual events that can be found on an actual calendar. And for those of you like me who live by the calendar, I want you just to think with me. Think about your calendar. Oftentimes, our calendars, whether you have a phone that keeps all your calendars, whether you're like me, and I don't trust that, so everything is written down, and I have my calendar, and it never leaves uh, never goes too far away from me. Our calendars often frustrate us, but yet they, they guide us. I, I love it. Every time I walk into mom's house, there's that calendar. I know exactly when her doctor's appointments are, when her hair appointment is. I mean, everything is there on that, that calendar. But just, just think about God carved time out of eternity. He made days. He made weeks. He made months, years, and seasons. We might ask, well, why? Well, let me give you one reason why. One reason why for such creativity of God was to give us fresh starts and new beginnings. And every single one of us, at one time or another, will be in need of a fresh start. We'll be in need of a new beginning. Some 70 years earlier from the book of Ezra, Babylon had conquered Jerusalem and deported most of the influential people, most of the, the strong academics, back to Babylon. What would have been a 900-mile trip. The Babylonians then would try to destroy the cultural identity of every 
person or every people that they conquered, by uprooting them from their land, by spreading them throughout other lands, by plundering and destroying all of their sacred buildings and objects and forcing them to worship Babylonian gods. So the, the policy of the Babylonians was to assimilate all conquered people into Babylonian culture, making them worship Babylonian gods. Think about the book of Daniel. We have that clear picture in the book of Daniel. Daniel being brought over, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, being told to worship the gods of Babylon. Yet the book of Ezra begins, hear this, not with Babylon in control, but Persia is now the new kid on the block. Persia is now the new king of the hill, so to speak. And the king of Persia is a guy by the name of Cyrus. And thankfully for God's people, God ruled over the heart of this pagan king, moving him to let the people of Judah return to Jerusalem. Therefore, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are, are books of hope that spring up even one of the, during one of the darkest periods in Judah's history where everything about Judah had fallen apart, but now God is stepping in to put it all back together. And think about this. Why was Judah restored when they were at their lowest point and they couldn't help themselves? You know, at a human level, it all looks just like a superstitious decision of a king. We talked about last week. That's what King Cyrus did. He would let their, the people go back to their lands to worship their gods, and he would say in a scheming way, make sure you pray to your gods to bless me. So it was, in a human standpoint, it's easy to say, well, it's just a selfish king being selfish for himself. But Ezra gives us another reason. The reason is God did it. That's the reason. God did it. Yes, God used the selfishness, scheming ways of this king, but God used it for his good. And do you know what Ezra is saying? The ultimate picture of Ezra is saying this, that restoration is not our work, is God's work. Meaning, restoration is not your doing, it is God's doing. It's what God does. Listen, we live in a day and age that says this, clean up yourself and go to God. So clean up yourself first and then go to God. The problem is, you trying to clean up yourself will never work. It will never work, ever. The Denver Post a few years back reported that self-help is a $6 billion a year industry. So self-help, yet we know the results of self-help seldom can be found within. If you're looking for answers, you'll seldom find those answers by looking within yourself. But the message of Ezra, really the message of the Bible, is that it's not our job to restore ourselves because we can't. Restoration has always been God's work. Please hear this this morning. I don't care what you've been taught or how long you've been taught it. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. And therefore, because they can't help themselves, they fall upon him for his help. That's who God helps. So the captivity of the exiles by Nebuchadnezzar stood as the most devastating, probably political and spiritual experience in Israel's history, or Judah's history at least. It represented a complete failure of covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And by all account, this should have marked the very end of this people. But here we have 70 years later, and God is doing a work. They are finally coming home. So today we're looking at this beautiful picture of the return of God's people to Zion, to 
Jerusalem, back to a place of worship. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read Ezra 1, even though we covered two verses last week. Read all the way through Ezra 1 and to uh, the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 2. So it says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the father's house of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Shaspazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now chapter 2, verse 1. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, as we saw last week, that you are a God who keeps your word. And we thank you that we have your word. Lord, we have your word. We have your promises. Today, as we come to this picture of your people returning, because, Lord, your word said they would, just speak to us in a way that shows forth your glory. God, we thank you for the revelation that is your word. But we are also, God, we need your illumination. Holy Spirit, we need you to illuminate your word to us. So do that today, Holy Spirit. Show us your word. Show us these truths. Show us how they apply to us and show us what they mean for us. Just thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. So in Irish mythology, so just think about Ireland. In Irish mythology, the hill of Ishna is believed to be the center of all of Ireland. This hill is kind of settled neatly in the Irish landscape, and it commands really no more attention than the rolling hills that surround it. Yet this hill is said to be the burial site of the goddess Iru. It comes from the, the key word Ire, which is where Ireland draws its name, but the hill of Ishna is basically designated as the, the thin place on the island countryside. And what that means is this. Thin places are said to be geographic locations where the eternal world and the physical world meet and mingle. So the concept of these 
thin places finds its origin in kind of the, the Celtic culture with stories of mystical travelers that come to this hill of Ishna in order to find a divine presence there. Now, as Christians, we don't believe in mystic forces of divine emanating from a goddess burial site. We don't believe that, but we do believe that those who seek God will find him. We believe that God, if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. We believe that wholeheartedly. And there, there is a sense, though, where the metaphor of thin place helps us to see the, the beauty of biblical worship. That we become more and more aware of God's presence in our lives with us. And in the story of, of the Jewish people's return to Jerusalem after a time of exile, we're reminded how important to the Jews was a particular place that God gave them to worship. Think about this. Throughout the Bible, God cares about places. So we see throughout the Bible, God cares about places. Think about the Garden of Eden. Think about the temple where God would meet with his people. In fact, in chapter 1, we read the word Jerusalem seven times. So Jerusalem, not any other city, was chosen for God to dwell among his people in the temple. And yet now, in the day and age in which we live, in the most beautiful way, God cares about a different place. If you don't know what that place is, let me tell you. It's about us being found, hear this, in Christ. Us being found in Christ. That is the place in which God meets us today, in Christ. Yet don't miss this. Even though God's presence emanated in Jerusalem, it's where his people worshiped him, we can still see God's presence with his people even in Babylon. We can see God's presence with his people even in the midst of their own slavery, their own exile. So what I want to do this morning is I want to lay before us three truths concerning those who returned to Jerusalem. From these verses, and of course we're going to cover all of chapter 2 very quickly, and you look at chapter 2 and that should scare you just a little bit because it scares me a lot. Anyway, first truth is this. They return, the people return through the stirring of God. So God's people return through the stirring of God. We kind of touched on this last week, but look at verse 5 on the screen. It says, Then rose up the heads of the father's house of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose, whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So just as God had stirred up the heart of Cyrus, that we saw that last week, God is now stirring the hearts of individual believers or individuals to return to Jerusalem. That phrase, everyone whose heart God had stirred, should be understood as basically referring to those whose spirit God had stirred who also obeyed the stirring of his spirit, who responded obediently to that stirring. So it becomes clear that Cyrus's decree that he gave did not obligate every Jew to return to Babylon. The decree simply encouraged those who would to leave and to do what God had told Cyrus to do, to build the temple. Now, undoubtedly, many of these Jews had settled down in Babylon. Remember, they had been there for 70 years. They were comfortable there. For many, they were born in Babylon. It was the only home they ever knew. It would have been easier for them just to stay in Babylon than to pull up stakes, travel 900 miles over unfamiliar terrain, 
to a place that lied in ruins. So everything was in ruins, and Jerusalem was vulnerable to all kind of different attacks. Nevertheless, some, and I say some because most scholars believe that less than 20% of those who populated Judah and Benjamin before Nebuchadnezzar came in, less than 20%, and some say even 10% returned. So only about 20%, probably closer to 10% actually returned to Jerusalem. But they, they elected to place their future in God's hands. I think of the words of Matthew Henry, the great Puritan, who said this, Many that heard God's joyful call chose to sit in Babylon because they were in love with their sins and would not venture upon the difficulties of a holy life. But some chose to break through the discouragements and resolve to build the house, whatever it cost them. I love that saying, some chose to break through the discouragements. To break through the discouragements, to break through. The choice for those in Babylon was who wants to leave behind Babylon so that you can go to Jerusalem and worship the Lord. Here are some obvious questions that confronted these people. Is the journey going to be easy? No, the journey is going to be difficult. It's going to be costly. Is everyone going to be favorable towards us as we do the work? No, there is going to be enemies. There's going to be resistance because anytime, hear this, anytime you do a work for God, there will always be resistance. There will always be those who fight against you. Is there going to be wealth and comfort while we do the work? No, there is nothing in Jerusalem except for rubble. Everything has to be rebuilt. So the question is this, then what's the offer? What is the offer? And here is the offer. The offer is simple. We get to go worship the Lord. That's, the, that's it. We get to go and worship the Lord. Yes, for them, their comfort was Babylon. Their upbringing, many of them had been in Babylon. Their wealth was in Babylon. Their worldview was controlled through the eyes of Babylon. There was no physical payoff for leaving Babylon and returning. But the, the call was simple. Go back, do strenuous work, give what you have so that a temple can be built so that you can worship God. And a small number said they would make the sacrifice, that they would make the journey, that they would endure the difficulty, that they would start the work. And what was, what was their reward? What was the reward of those who said, yes, I will do it? Let me tell you what the reward is. God wrote down their names. He wrote their names down. We have the names of their families in chapter 2. That was their reward. God said, I'm writing your names down for all to know that you obeyed me when no one else would. When 90% of those who could have gone chose not to, you obeyed me. And brothers and sisters, let me just say this very, very clearly. I could care less if 90% of you refuse to obey the Lord. I'm still going to obey him. Now, I'm praying that 100% of us would obey the Lord. I'm praying that we would seek the Lord, trust the Lord, follow what the Lord says, knowing that where the Lord leads, he provides. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but think about this. What about you? Are you in need of a new beginning? Or if you took 
the challenge last week seriously. How has God stirred your heart this week? And what have you done about it? What have you done about God stirring your heart? Do we just get to a place where we just ignore it? Or do we get to a place where we just don't ask? And please don't come at me with, with I don't have any time, because I guarantee you've caught up on all your shows this week. So that whole, that whole mess of I don't have time is just a bunch of bull. You have time to do whatever you want to do. Amen. As in the same way, I have time to do whatever I want to do. Oh, that we would seek the Lord, that he would stir our hearts, that we would obey him. But they, they returned through the stirring of God. But then secondly, they returned through the provision of God, through God's provision. So God promised to restore his people to their land, and it all looked impossible. Like, no way this is going to happen. It looked impossible because Cyrus, the king of Persia, was in charge. It looked impossible because the exiles couldn't afford to make the trip to Jerusalem, and they definitely couldn't afford to rebuild the temple. Yet God makes impossible things possible. Listen to the decree of Cyrus in verse 4 of chapter 1. He said, let each survivor be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So this decree basically urged those who stayed behind to support those who went. So this description was probably meant to echo the same experience of the children of Israel when they left Egypt. So when God's people left Egypt in Egypt 12, or excuse me, Egypt 12, Exodus 12, we are told that the children of Israel requested from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And even though the Egyptians gave it to them freely, the Bible still says that they plundered the Egyptians. So something similar happened here. When the people returned to the land, they returned with the wealth of Babylon. So it is the reason why many scholars call Ezra the second Exodus. So just as the Israelites plundered the Egyptians, so the exiles would carry back articles of silver and gold and animals from their land of captivity. But it doesn't just stop there. Look at verse 7. In verse 7 it says, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. So when an army would defeat another, so when one nation would defeat another nation, the victors would always take the images of worship from their defeated foes. Whatever they worship, they would take them back. They would lock them in their temples as a sign that their God was powerless. So if you defeated a nation, you would go and collect their gods. You would take their gods back to your temple, put them in your temple as a sign that their gods could do nothing and your God was more powerful. Now, Israel, as we know it, had no images of God because that is a second commandment issue of what you should not do. But instead of that, Nebuchadnezzar took all of the utensils from the temple that were used to worship God. All to try to show that God was powerless. Yet, think about this. After 70 years, these objects of gold and silver have survived. You know why they survived? Because God saw fit for them to survive. In fact, we are told that what led to Persia coming in was actually in Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar. Belshazzar, basically, he decided one night to get drunk, and he said, let's, let's get all of the objects that were used for the temple of Israel. Let's bring it, let's use those 
those objects. And of course, as they're doing it, as they're parting, a hand appears and writes on the wall, basically, you're done. You are done. And Babylon fell because or or through that. But the, the picture is this. Think about this beautiful reality. The Lord was now directing these items to be placed back into the hands of Israel for worship. The nations may rise up and plot against the Lord and his people, but God will rule those nations. God will remain faithful to his people. God will remain faithful to his word. Some people that I know love to to search for treasures. This week I had a guy that that worked with the demolition company say, hey, can I come and sweep the the property with with my metal detector, see if I can find anything? I said, yeah, sure, as long as if you find something great, we're splitting it. Just so, just so you know, but here he is searching for, for things, and a lot of people do that, hoping that hidden things will turn into valuable things. So hidden things will become valuable, but even better than searching for valuable things is having treasure given to you. Having treasure given to you. When God's people were preparing to return to Jerusalem, Cyrus brought the greatest treasure to the people, whatever they could long, the greatest treasure they could long for, the articles of the temple. These items were of great significance for them because they were not just hidden treasures of sentimental value. They connected them to the people of the past. And now ha- having these items, they brought to mind God's presence to them then, but they were also reminded that God is still doing something in their midst now. We don't just serve a God of history. We serve a God of the present. We serve a God of the future. And so these articles weren't just pictures of past experiences. They would lead to new experiences. They would experience God in new ways in their lives. For God was bringing his people home. God was establishing them in the land that he promised he would return them to years ago. God was providing for their journey from other people for the rebuilding of the temple and let me just remind us today God still promises to provide for his people now he still promises to provide for us God is still Jehovah Jireh he is still the God who provides for us now the problem is we think sometimes that we're the ones who provide for ourselves and let me, t- let me just remind you this. Try to do any of the things you do without the breath that God gives you. Try to do anything that you do without the breath that God gives you. And I can just, I, I'm not a doctor, but I can say this, you're not getting much done. God gives us all. He provides for us. He has promised to meet every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That is our promise. So through the provision of God. And then third, number three, they returned through the deliverance of God. They returned through the deliverance of God. So the Lord's restoration was about people, not just about a place. And I I think it's fair to say that no one would ever look at Ezra chapter 2. If you ask anyone to identify their favorite chapter in the Bible, no one would say, yeah, my favorite chapter in all the Bible is Ezra 2. Just look with me. Now look at Ezra 2 in your Bible. If you're able to look at Ezra 2, just look at it. Just scan over it. Let your eyes wash over chapter 2. I mean, what in the world? Names, numbers. More names, more numbers. 
more names and more numbers. Why is a chapter which contains a detailed list of family names of the 42,360 returning exiles from Babylon, why would this chapter be included in Ezra and basically the same chapter being included in Nehemiah chapter 7? And here's the answer. God knows who we are. God knows our names. God cares about us. And hear this, God cares about our obedience. These are the ones who obeyed him, and therefore God wrote their names down. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Now these were the people, in the screen it says, who came out of the captivity of those exiles who Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. From chapter 2, or verse 2, excuse me, all the way to verse 58, we have a list of the leaders of people. It starts in verse 2 with Zerubbabel, who would be the, the prince of, of Judah. We have Joshua, or Jeshua, who would be the, the priest. So we have the leaders of the people of Israel who returned to Jerusalem. Then we have the 33 families of the tribe of Judah, four families of the priest, families of the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, 36 families of temple servants, and then finally, families of Solomon's servants. And while it is so tempting to skip over these names, in fact, I was very kind to you this week and that I did not include Ezra 2 in our Bible reading plan. I knew better than to include that because I knew most of us would just skip over it all together. Like, nope, not going to do that. But this chapter begins with an important statement about those who came back to Babylon. Evil King Nebuchadnezzar had carried God's people away into exile, and now God had faithfully brought his people back. He brought his people back. And again, look at chapter 2. We normally see name after name that we can't pronounce. And we think, is there anything that I can learn from these names? Or we think about so-and-so begot so-and-so, who begot so-and-so, who begot so-and-so. What can I learn from that? But here's what we can learn. These names, especially here and their journey from Babylon to Judah, is a reminder of the steadfast love of God for his people. It, it, it's a reminder, we, we said last week, that God keeps his people and God keeps his word. He keeps his people. He keeps his word. God had set them free, but also, same with us, God had given them a purpose. You are free from Babylon, but you now have a purpose. So two more things I want to lay out before we close today. First, I want you to look at verse 70. If you look at verse 70 of chapter 2, in verse 70 of chapter 2, it says this. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. I want you to see that phrase, all the rest of Israel. All the rest of Israel. So how many original tribes were there in Israel? So there were 12 tribes. The northern kingdom made up of 10 tribes was defeated and displaced by Assyria in 722 B.C. Years later, not quite 200 years later, the Babylonians came in and defeated the southern kingdom, which was Judah and Benjamin, defeated them, displaced them. Now, there has been talk, and you might have heard this, you might even believe this, there's been talk by many religious people about a group called the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. You ever heard about that? The Ten Lost Tribes. I, I've I've heard it, yet let me just say this. I don't believe it. 
I don't believe it. You might choose to believe it, but I think this, if you choose to believe it, you're believing something about God that isn't true of God, meaning you believe that God loses his people. And God doesn't lose his people. Think about this. These ten tribes, yes, of the northern kingdom were taken by Assyria. The Babylonians come in, come, come in and took the two tribes of, of Babylon. But then Persia comes in and defeats them all. So what Persia probably did, chances are really, really good. When Persia came into the Assyrian places and defeated them, they probably brought some of the people back and therefore mixed other people of Israel with the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Think about it like this. In Nehemiah 7, when Nehemiah gives us the list of the same names we have here in Ezra 2, Nehemiah includes 12 names of the leaders representing the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, when we get to Ezra 6 in a few weeks and the dedication of the temple, guess how many goats were sacrificed as a free will or a sin offering? 12 goats. What do they represent? The 12 tribes of Israel. We're told in Ezra 12, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. All throughout this book, they're called now the people of Israel, not just the people of, of Judah. Because those who returned represented the full covenant people of God. So, again, people talk about the lost tribes of Israel. I don't believe it because God doesn't lose his people then and he doesn't lose his people now. God doesn't lose his own. He won't lose us. And, again, all of this information is found in a boring list of names. I mean, who needs fictional stories when you can open the Bible and read name after name after name? Yet these names show us God's love for individual people, and they show us God's gracious plan for our salvation. What I mean by that is this. Because God brought these people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, the time would come for God to send his son into that same area in order to save us from our sins. But then secondly... I want you to consider with, with me quickly verses 59 through verse 63. Because the status of, of families who wanted to serve in the priesthood but could not prove their ancestry comes up. And remember, priests had to come from a certain line of, of what person? So priests had to come from Levi, but not just Levi. From one of Levi's sons, Aaron. Had to come from the tribe of Aaron, from the line of, of Aaron. So look at verses 59 through 63. A dilemma happens. Verse 59, the following were those who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harshah, Cherub, Adon, and Enmer, those that they would not prove their father's houses or could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652. Also the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakos, the sons of Barzillia, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Brasilia, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. I know that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but there were men who wanted to serve as priests, but they were unable to prove that they came from the line of Aaron. Therefore, they were told, you cannot, because when it comes to the line of Aaron and the priesthood, it must be holy. 
And we have to make sure it has to be holy. Therefore, these men who wanted to serve in the priesthood and said, listen, we come from Aaron, although they couldn't prove it, they needed someone to step up and to do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. They needed someone to step up and claim them. And let me just put it this way. If you are here today, and right this moment, you are not a believer, let me suggest that you are in the same condition that these families were in. You are unable to achieve anything in and of yourself to bring vindication with God, before God. But the good news is there is a priest. He is called the great high priest who has provided for everything that you are in need of. For that great high priest came and lived the life you could not live. He died the death you couldn't die for the sins of the world. And he conquered sin, death, and the grave. And he has provided vindication for us that if we call upon his name, we will be saved. We will be accepted before God. That is our promise. To any who are far off, the question is it, or the Declaration is this, turn from yourself, turn from your sin, and turn to Jesus Christ. Find life in him. Let me come back to where I began. God cares about places. He cared about Eden. He cared about Jerusalem, about bringing his people back, and he cares, oh, how he cares for us being found in Jesus. For in Jesus, we have eternal life. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus, we have peace with God. In Jesus, according to Hebrews, we have a sure and steady anchor that will hold no matter what storms come in our lives. And in Jesus, we have a rock that we can build our lives upon. And although the winds might shake us, they'll never shake our rock. They'll never shake him. He will never be moved. And what we have seen so far is a beautiful picture of God's restoration of his people. A beautiful picture of God keeping his promise to his people. Of God rescuing his people from exile, bringing them back. And here's what we know throughout the whole word, God does that over and over and over again. God brings his people out of a faraway place and restores them and brings them back. As I read through Ezra 1 and 2, I can't help but think about and long for restoration like that to take place in our lives for any who are in a faraway place for that to take place in your life my prayer is god help us to believe that there is hope for us even when we find ourselves in faraway places god help us to believe that while we are waiting god you're working even we can't see your hand god you are working God, help us to believe that if we follow your lead, God, you will always provide. You'll always provide. Where the Lord leads, he will provide. And God, help us to feel the weight of worshiping you freely. In fact, I want to show you one more verse. I'm going to put it on the screen. It's actually verse 68 of chapter 2. And it says this, Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings for the house of God 
to erect it on its site. And let me just remind you, when they came back to Jerusalem, all they found was rubble. Even the temple of God was just rubble. Yet they came, and when they saw the temple, they began to collect free will offerings, meaning this, even in the rubble of their lives, they worshiped God. Brothers and sisters, as I said last week, we're not only called to worship God on the mountaintop, we're also called to worship God in the rubble. We're called to worship God when nothing makes sense. We're called to worship him when the direction that we want God to take our lives isn't going that direction. And when things around us just crumble and fall, we're still to worship him even in the rubble. And as we're going to see next, next week, the first thing they did was rebuild the altar. Let me end today with the words of Pastor David Jeremiah. that kind of sums up where we have been, but basically where we're going next week. And he says this, The book of Ezra teaches us to seek the Lord in prayer, submit to his word, and acknowledge his wisdom, power, presence, and love. The rubble may not be cleared away in a day or a year, but when we put first things first, the rest of life will come back into alignment. Begin with the altar, with worship, and restoration will follow. Begin with the altar, begin with worship, and restoration will follow. Let me say this this morning. On Wednesday night, Brother Dave spoke about Elijah. Elijah had just called down fire from heaven, had prayed, and God had sent rain after three and a half years. And yet, because Jezebel was against him, he took off and he ran and ran. And he asked God, he said, God, I'm the only one that's worshiping you. God, just kill me. Just kill me. I'm the only one that cares about you, God. I'm the only one that cares. And of course, Elijah was completely just spinning out of control. He was looking at himself. He wasn't looking at the God that he served, and he was coming up with all kind of terrible outcomes. You ever done that? You get your eyes off God, you look at yourself, and everything's going to go wrong. Terrible outcome after terrible outcome, but then God did this. God came to Elijah, and God said this. There are 7,000 knees that have not bowed to Baal. You know what God said to Elijah? Elijah, things are 7,000 times better than you think they are. He thinks, Elijah thinks, I'm just one. And God says, no, 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 no. There's 7,000, Elijah, just like you. Just like you. Brothers and sisters, don't let the rubble in your life take your eyes off the one who has promised that things will be 7,000 times better than you think they are. Even millions times better than you think they are. And as the people of God returned Return to Jerusalem then. May we return to our God now. We return to him now. See the way to return to him. He has made a way. Even in far off places, he's made a way for us. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. Ask Brother Frank and the musicians to come forward as we enter this time of invitation and consecration. And let us pray together. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word, even though, Lord, sometimes we shy away from books like this, especially chapters like chapter two, we shy away from them. Yet they tell us, Lord, that you care about people. You care about names. You care about obedience. And Lord, you don't just care about their obedience. You care about our obedience. 
You care about us obeying you now. Lord, maybe, maybe there's been so long of a distance where we have disobeyed you, and that disobedience has led us to a faraway place. And we feel so far from you. Remind us today that nearness of you begins with one step of obedience. One act of obedience right now. Humbling ourselves before you. Confessing our sin before you. Returning to you, O oh God. I think of, Father, the, the prophets all throughout the Old Testament. Just about every single one of them, the, the message they gave to the people was return to God. Return to God. Return to God. And never, never did they say, return to God and he might receive you. No, if we return to you, O oh God, you will receive us. We come to you in Christ. We will be received. So just finish this time in a way that brings honor and glory to you. Father, I pray that if any is far from you today, apart from Jesus, that today would be a day of salvation. I pray for any others that know you but yet are in a far off place, that today would be a day of obedience for them as well. Lord, regardless of where we find ourselves, may we find ourselves even now, Lord, worshiping you even in the rubble. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.